Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to the Totally Driven Entertainment Radio Network. In the future, none of you are heroes. You're legends. Get driven. Stay driven. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Bareback Facts. Today, I am reintroducing a new, well, not it's new to you guys, but it's not new to me. It's the Historical Coliseum, a place where heroes from history can meet in a field with another worthy adversary. And today, we're talking about the legacies of two very, very impressive individuals. For starters, we're going to be starting out with you, Yui Fei, uh, he is a far-famed general from China during the Song Dynasty, uh, considered by many to be one of the greatest generals, military minds in human history, and he will be facing off against perhaps one of the most well-known historical figures out of Japan. That would be quite impressive, Miyamoto Musashi. So without further ado, Let's get right into it. Today, uh, we're going to be starting with uh, General Yui Fei. Now, uh, Yui Fei is one of China's most celebrated generals. Uh, He was born at the end of the Northern Song Dynasty, uh, roughly around the year 1103. uh, And he only lived to be about 39 years or around the age of 35. Uh, So for his time, he lived a fairly long life. Uh, We would consider it to be rather short. Uh, but for his time, he lived quite a while. Uh, now, he was known not only for his military successes, uh, but also for his high ethical standards. Uh, through many ancient biographies uh, that have been written on him, telling his story, and a temple that is dedicated to his memory, in Chinese lore, he is, con- he is an endearing symbol of loyalty. Now, uh, when he was coming of age, China was invaded uh, from the north by the Yurchins, and the imperial court was in desperate need of capable warriors. Uh, Yui faced a dilemma. He wanted to battle the invaders and defend his country, but he also wanted to stay back and take care of his elderly mother. So, repeating Chinese virtues, upholding the standard of protecting one's family, but also filial piety, you know, his, his, his loyalty to the nation versus uh, his loyalty to his family. Uh, his mother, however, would help him find a way. She encouraged him to take off his shirt, and according to legend, tattooed four Chinese characters along his back, Ying, Zong, Bao, and Guoi, uh, which, which roughly translates to serve the country loyally. Uh, now able to fulfill his, both his mother's wish and his duty to the country, he promptly went off to battle. In 11, uh, roughly the year 1127, uh, the Yurkins attacked the northern Song capital of Kaifeng. Uh, they took the emperor, his father, and hundreds of palace officials prisoner. And the emperor's younger brother, however, manages to escape, crossing the Yangtze uh, and establishing the southern Song government. Now, even though the Song forces retreated, uh, uh, not defeated in the battle, uh, in, the, in those battles, and, and becomes a national symbol of hope during these difficult times. Uh, in a later battle, Yui Fei was largely outnumbered, leading a force of only 500 men. He managed to repel 
100,000 Yurkin soldiers, uh, beating them so savagely uh, and fighting with such ferocity that they were forced to retreat uh, and give up the ground to his men. So quite an impressive feat. Uh, this guy basically was a real-life uh, King Leonidas. Um, you know, 500 versus 100,000 is incredibly impressive. But it's not only his military prowess and skill that Uife was particularly famous for. Uh, he's actually more famous for his relationship with the people around him. Uh, He's famous for protecting civilians and caring for his own soldiers off the battlefield, whether that be making sure they were fed or care of their wounds. He was strict with his soldiers, and he forbade them from taking advantage of common folk in the towns that they would pass through. After the Southern Song Dynasty was established, Yui Fei was sent to suppress an uprising. He did, but after the rebellion was squashed, the Southern Song Emperor ordered him to execute everyone in town. Yui Fei hesitated, pleading repeatedly that ordinary citizens' lives be spared, and eventually convinced his emperor only to execute those who had instigated the uprising, sparing the rest of the townspeople. Now, while you might say these people still got executed, so, you know, not really much of an achievement. In fact, it is quite the achievement uh, that we see um, him able to convince the emperor not to just kill everybody. Uh, The townspeople would thank him, and the emperor presented him with a banner that read the highest loyalty of Yui Fei, uh, celebrating his devotion to the welfare of the people as well as to the throne. Uh, Yui Fei is well documented to have cared quite deeply for his men. Uh, Many state that if they fell ill, he would personally administer medicine to them. If they died in battle, he would help their families. Uh, When receiving rewards from the imperial court, uh, many recounted his generosity in sharing his treasures with his soldiers. Um, Yu Fei's accomplishments, however, prompted jealousy among several officials close to the emperor who talked him into believing that far from the capital, Yu Fei might become too powerful and dangerous. And so he was forced to return to the palace, leaving the areas he had secured to be reconquered by enemy armies. Uh, To this, Yu Fei was said to have once remarked that 10 years of effort was destroyed in a flash. Uh, his, gener- his troubles would not end with his return. Uh, he would be stripped of his power. Uh, and, uh, and a year later, a magistrate named King Hue uh, sentenced him to death on trumped-up charges, uh, and he w- was 39 uh, the day that that happened. So Shen, he's, he's actually quite famous because of that. Um, there's several dances, several other things. Um, but I want to look a little bit deeper at, at some of the achievements of Yui Fei. Now, Yui Fei was, renowned, was a renowned archer. Um, quite a, several detailed fictional accounts of his early life. Um, we know that uh, <clears throat> he, was, he was taught uh, his lessons in uh, military strategy, archery, uh, and even taught to wield approximately 18 different weapons, ranging from sword size, uh, and various other weapons, uh, all the way down to stabs. Um, now, it's said that he once entered into the Tangian uh, County Military Examination 
uh, in which Uefe wins one first place by shooting a succession of nine arrows consecutively through the bullseye of a target 240 paces away from where he was standing. Uh, Now, again, lots of his uh, achievements are heavily embellished, as tends to happen with these individuals. Uh, But what we do know about Uefe is that he was an incredible archer. Uh, there were many who said that he could shoot a bird in the eye uh, while it was flying overhead. Um, you know, I don't know. You know, maybe he could, uh, but the fact that he could hit a uh, a bullseye from 240 paces away is uh, is still pretty impressive, considering uh, you know the the types of bows that they would be using. Um, Many people cited that Uefe possessed supernatural power, and before his adulthood, he was able to draw a bow of uh, of roughly 400 pounds and a crossbow of of, uh, 1,280 1280 pounds of pressure. Uh, He learned archery uh, from Zhou Tong uh, and learned everything and could shoot uh, with his left and right hands. Now, this is according to uh, a famous novel, the biography of Uefe. Um, so, again, these are a lot of individuals uh, who wrote about this guy uh, and some of the things that he did. One, uh, E. Wang Shi records that when Uefe reached adulthood, uh, his maternal grandfather, Yao Dewang, hired a spear expert, Shen Guang, to teach him spear fighting. Uh, both the biography of Yui Fei and um, Yi Wang Shi mention uh, you learning from Zhou and Chen at or before his adulthood. Now, um, he gained all of his martial knowledge, however, by the time he joined the army of age 19. Uh, Now, there's some speculation as to whether or not he started military training at the age of 13 or 15, uh, but nonetheless, Uh, He became quite proficient in several forms of martial arts, multiple forms of weapon play. Uh, He is only said to have been learned uh, spear play, archery, sword play, and military tactics. Uh, Non-historical and and non-scholarly sources state that in addition to those, uh, he was taught other skills such as hand-to-hand combat and horseback riding. Uh, but these, again, don't mention any specific martial arts style. Uh, one, there are, however, several legends involving him learning some uh, some forms of martial art. Uh, one legend states that he was taken by Zhou uh, to an unspecified place to meet a Buddhist hermit who taught him the Emei Daipeng Kijong, which is supposedly... Uh, the source of his legendary strength and martial arts abilities. According to 13th generation uh, lineage, Tai He, uh, Wu Deng Quan, uh, Master Fan Keping, a collector of rare martial arts manuals, uh, Zhou Tong was a master of various hard Qigong exercises. Now, <clears throat> even the tattoo that he received is said uh, to be rather legend. Uh, though there are historical records that he had uh, the four Chinese characters uh, for loyalty to serve the country uh, with utmost loyalty tattooed across his back. So we're, we're pretty sure that he did that. And it's unlikely, however, that he did know this, uh, you know, all these martial arts 
you know, he's probably not a super saiyan, no matter how bad people wanted him to be. Uh, you know, damn, you, you got to hate it when you don't get to go full super saiyan. Um, but these things happen. Uh, now, he was, um, now, Yuife comes from a rather um, humble beginnings. He was the son of an impoverished farmer from northern China, uh, and he joined the Song military uh, around the year 1122. Uh, He briefly leaves the army when his father dies in 1123, but returns in 1126 uh, after his mother sends him back. After re-enlisting, he fought to suppress rebellions uh, and defeat Chinese warlords, preventing them from looting in northern China in defending Kaifeng during the second siege of the city by the Jin in, in 1127. Uh, after the city eventually falls, he joins an army in Zhekong tasked with defending the Yangtze. This army prevented the uh, Yurkins from advancing to the river in 1129. This is uh, the battle of 500 versus 100,000. They're back to a river. Uh, they managed to make it so costly that the army decides to leave. Um, his rising reputation attracted the attention of many in the Song court, as I mentioned already. Uh, but by 1133, he is made the general of the largest army near central Yangtze. Uh, between 1134 and 1135, he leads a counteroffensive against the Kai, which is a puppet, uh, which is a puppet state supported by the Jin uh, and secured territories that had been conquered by the Yurkins. Uh, he continued to advance in rank and to increase the size of his army as he repeatedly. Uh, led successful offensives in northern China. Uh, several other generals were also successful against the Jin dynasty, and their combined efforts secured the survival of the Song dynasty. Yue, like most of them, was committed to recapturing northern China and reunifying the country. Um, <clears throat> now, according to the poetry of Fang Chengda, which is written from uh, 1126 to 1193, uh, Yui Fei repelled the enemy assaults in 1133 and 1134 until in the year 1135, the now confident Song army was in a position to recover all of North China from the Qin. Uh, in 1140, Yui Fei initiated a general counterattack against the Qin, uh, defeating one enemy after another until, after, uh, he, until he set up camp within range of the northern Song dynasty's old capital city of Kaifeng. Uh, in preparation for the final assault against them. <clears throat> However, it's in this same year uh, that he is ordered to abandon this campaign and is summoned back to the capital, where he uh, is then ordered to be hanged. Now, according to uh, many chroniclers, um, Yui uh, had... Six special methods for deploying his army effectively. The first was called careful selection. He relied on more small, more on small numbers of well-trained soldiers than he did on large masses of poorly trained variety. Uh, in this way, one superior soldier counted for as much as 100 inferior soldiers. Yui Fei was noted for believing that the better trained his men were, the more effective they would be. And so he relied less on numbers and more on quality. Um, so Yui Fei, when he would give would, would be given recruits, would tr- would put all of his men through rigorous training and weed out the weak ones, sending them home. Uh, he was even, and once he had filtered out the weak soldiers, 
uh, he would he would stick with what he had, whether it be uh, ten thousand men, one thousand men, or five hundred men. Uh, he believed that he only needed to have quality soldiers surrounding him. Uh, he deployed his army with careful training. When his troops were not on military campaigns to win back lost Chinese territory in the north, he put his men through intense training. Apart from troop movement and weapons drills, this training involved them leaping over walls, crawling through moats in full battle garb. The intensity of the training was such that men would not even try to visit their families if they passed by their homes while on movement and even trained on their days off. So his men uh, trained nonstop at his behest. Uh, justice and rewards and punishments. He rewarded his men for their merits and punished them for their boasting or lack of training. Uh, it's According to one of his biographies, UA once gave a foot soldier his own personal belt, silver dinnerware, and a promotion for his meritorious deeds in a battle. On the reverse, it said he once ordered his son, Yui Yun, to be decapitated for falling off his horse after failing to jump a moat. His son was only saved after... The officers begged his mercy. Uh, there were a number of soldiers that were either dismissed or executed because they boasted of their skills or failed to follow orders. Clear orders was the sixth method. He always delivered his orders in a simple manner that was easy for all of his men to understand, and anyone who failed to uphold any orders given would be severely punished. Oftentimes the penalty was death. Strict discipline. While marching about the countryside, he never allowed his troops to destroy fields or to pillage towns or villages, and he made them pay a fair price for any goods, made sure crops remained intact. A soldier once stole a hemp rope from a peasant so that he could tie a bale of hay with it. Uh, this, when, when he was discovered, uh, he questioned the soldier, and he didn't like what he heard, so he executed him. Finally, uh, the sixth method of dealing with his armies, he cl- close fellowship with his men. Uh, Yui was heavily touted by many to be a man among men. He treated all of his men like equals. He ate the same food that they did. He slept out in the open like they did. And even when a temporary shelter was erected from him, for him, he made sure several soldiers could find room to sleep inside before he found a spot of his own. When there was not enough wine to go around, he would dilute it with water so every soldier would receive a portion. Yui Fei believed that to find success on the battlefield, to become a great general, you had to know your men, and you had to be like your men, and they had to be like you. He was led by example, uh, despite the jealousy of those uh, around him. he still managed to uh, achieve a great deal of fame. So there's, uh, that's, that's, uh, let's, let's take a look. I'm going to make sure I didn't miss anything before we move on to the next guy. Ah, here we are. Uh, there are, in fact, according to legend, again, I mentioned uh, some of the various types of martial arts that Uyve went out and learned. Now, there are two forms of martial art that are associated with Uyife. Um The first is eagle claw, and the sec- second is Jiging boxing. Now, one, there are several different source materials suggesting all sorts of different things. Uh, 
according to The Secrets of Eagle Claw, Kung Fu, uh, by Ying Xiaopao, uh, Yui created. Uh, there, there's several legends that involve him uh, creating martial arts. Uh, one, the power of the internal martial arts combat secrets of Bakwai, uh, Tai Chi, and Hai Xing uh, by Bruce Kumar Francis uh, states that uh, Yui created Eagle Claw for his enlisted soldiers, and he created the implemented the other style of boxing for his officers. Um, now, supposedly, he studied in a the Shaolin Monastery with a monk named Zhao Tong and learned the elephant style of boxing, a set of hand techniques with great emphasis on joint locking. Other tales say that he learned his style elsewhere, outside the temple under the same master. Uh, Yue uh, expanded elephant style to create the Yibai Ling Bakina, uh, the 108 locking hands technique of the Ying Sao or Eagle Hands. Uh, others call it the Ying Qian, the Eagle Fist. Uh, after becoming a general in the Imperial Army, Yue taught his men this style, um, and they were very successful in battle against the armies of the Qin Dynasty. Now, following uh, his wrongful execution and the disbandment of his armies, um, Yue's men supposedly traveled all over China spreading the style which eventually ended right back in Shaolin, where it all began. Later, a monk named Li Quan combined this style with Fan Quan, another style attributed to Yue, to create the modern-day form of Northern Ying Zhao Pai boxing. So supposedly, that's where that where uh, Ying Ying Zhao Pai boxing comes from. And of course, much of this shroud of mystery and legends, we can't really uh, you know, we we can't really assert uh, too much. That he did everything. Uh, he's also connected. Uh, he's also been connected with praying mantis boxing, uh, according to uh, Xu Yue Wanzhou, uh, Lin Chong, and Lu Junyi of the 108 Outlaws in Water Margin were former uh, students of Yue's teacher Zhao Tong. And one legend states that Zhao learned uh, praying mantis boxing and then passed it on to. UFA. So this is a guy who's got uh, he's been associated with a lot of cool stuff. Nonetheless, uh, his his real life achievements uh, and his real life character make him uh, make him extraordinary on his own. But um, getting all these legends to be you know being associated with all this legendary stuff uh, certainly doesn't help your case, right? Um, in addition to warfare and martial arts. Yui Fei uh, was supposedly uh, 30. He supposedly wrote his most celebrated poem, uh, which is titled Man Jiang Hong, Entirely Red River. This poem reflects the raw hatred he felt towards the Yurkin ruled Jin dynasty, as well as the sorrow he felt when his efforts to recoup northern lands to ho- lost, lost to the Jin were halted by southern Song officials of the peace faction. However, several modern historians, including the late uh, Princeton University professor Thomas T.C. Louis believes certain phrasing in the poem dates its creation of the early 16th century, uh, stating that he didn't, it's, it's more than likely that UA didn't even write this poem. Uh, it's more likely somebody else wrote it and slapped his name on it. Uh, Yue Fei's uh, stature in Chinese history rose to that of a national folk hero after his execution. 
Qin uh, Jue and in some cases Emperor Gaozong were blamed by later historians for their supposed role in his execution and conciliatory stance with the Jin dynasty. The allegations that Yuan Hui conspired with the Jin to execute Yue Fei are popular in Chinese literature but have never fully been proven. Uh, the real Yue Fei differed from, from the later myths that grew from his exploits. The portrayal of him as a scholar general is only partially true. Uh, he was a skilled general and may have been partially literate in classical Chinese, but he was not an erudite, uh, an erudite uh, Confucian scholar. Contrary to traditional legends, uh, he was not the sole Chinese general engaged in the offensive against the Yurkins, although I believe I mentioned that already. Uh, he was one of the many generals that fought against the Jin in northern China. Uh, and unlike him, uh, Yue Fei, some of his peers were genuine members of the scholarly elite, uh, many of the exaggerations of his life can be traced to a biography written by his grandson Yui K. Hey, you gotta give you know, gotta give him credit for that. Uh, his status as a folk hero strengthened in the Yuan Dynasty and had a large impact on Chinese culture. Uh, temples and shrines devoted to Yui Fei were constructed during the Ming Dynasty. A Chinese World War II anthem also alludes to lyrics said to have been written by him as well. He also appears as a door god in partnership with the deity Wen Taibao. Uh, so uh, the life and legacy of Yui Fei, uh, rather remarkable individual uh, who got uh, props from a lot of people, particularly his son, who's one hell of a publicist. Uh, if I ever have a son, hopefully he tells great stories about how awesome I am when I die. Uh, make sure parents tell your kids to tell great stories about your life now. I hardly feel like I need to introduce my next contestant, Musashi Miyamoto, or Miyamoto Musashi, as many of you come to know him. Uh, but I'm going to introduce him anyway. Uh, he's considered by many to be um, one of the most legendary swordsmen to ever live. Uh, his birthday and his early life were sort of hard to pin down for many historians. Uh, but most historians agree that Miyamoto Musashi was born around the year 1584, uh, which was a period of turmoil uh, as the country had been thrown into civil war with different Japanese warlords fighting for supremacy over the Japanese territory. Uh, when it comes to Japanese history, all I can say about that is what else is new. Uh, they're always, they're, they, for, for a better part of their history, they're kind of always uh, struggles between warlords there, so, similar to China, similar to Europe, uh, you know, medieval the more ancient medieval and then later medieval years of Europe and, and parts of Asia, it's all, it's all fight over who gets in charge of everything. Why not? Uh, he was born into a samurai family in Miyamoto village in the Hirama province. Uh, his full name was Shinmin Musashi no Kami Fujiwara no Genshin. And his childhood name was either Benosuke or Takezo Keizo. Uh, it's unknown, however, which one of those was his childhood name. Most people uh, now refer to him as Musa Miyamoto Musashi, so it yeah, kind of doesn't really matter all that much. Uh, he took his name from his birthplace, uh, Miyamoto Village, uh, in, in his adult years. His father was a samurai named Shinmin Munasai, uh, who was an accomplished swordsman and an expert in Kenjutsu. For those of you who don't know what Kenjutsu is, it's swordsmanship, and then Jutsu. Uh, Munasai taught Kenjutsu and Jujutsu uh, to Musashi at a very young age, uh, as was the tradition in samurai families. And the young Musashi showed an early talent for swordsmanship. Shinmin Munasai 
father, Harata Shogun, was a vassal of Lord Shinman Iga no Kami of the Mimasaka province. Now, his mother died soon after he was born, so he was raised by a stepmother, a woman named Tochiko, whom very little is known about. When his father, Manusai, divorced her, Musashi was sent to live with his uncle Doran, a monk from the Shorayan Temple, and while staying with this monk, he was taught Zen Buddhism and basic skills such as reading and writing. Minusai um, was a very harsh, strict, and demanding man, especially towards his son. Uh, throughout their life, uh, the relationship between him and his father, uh, between Minusai and Miyamoto, was uh, rather tumultuous. Uh, Minusai showed no love for Musashi, uh, and it's unknown what exactly happened, but when Musashi was around 9 or 10. His father either died or completely abandoned him. Uh, Many historians uh, kind of debate this. Some historians say that Shinman uh, Minusai was killed during a duel with a swordsman named Ganru Yoshitaka, Uh, but uh, we still don't know. Now, according to personal details given by Miyamoto Musashi in his book of Five Rings or the Go Rin No Show, uh, Musashi had his first duel at the age of 13. Uh, his opponent was a samurai from the Tajima province, uh, the man named Arima Kibai, who was a swordsman from the Shinto Ryu Kenjutsu school. Uh, seconds after the beginning of the fight, uh, Musashi threw him on the ground and hit him with a bakudo, a wooden sword, and he hit him so hard with it that Arima died, vomiting his own blood. Uh, Musashi would leave the temple when he was between 16 or 20 years old. The dates are a little unclear. This is a very tumultuous time. Records are hard to come by. Uh, he did so to perfect his swordsmanship and his skills with the katana to follow his ambition to become the greatest swordsman in Japan. In Japan. Uh, so Miyamoto Musashi... Uh, set out with the goal of being the greatest. He wanted to be the best that's ever been, like no one, like no one's ever been. Uh, instead of catching Pokemon, though, he wanted to just kill a lot of people, uh, and he's going to do exactly that. Um, now, Miyamoto Musashi was said to have taken part in the Battle of Sekigahara, uh, which is first of year sixteen hundred. Uh, this was a war between the Toya Toma, Tomi and Takagawa clans for the unification of Japan. Uh, because his family was allied to the Toyotomi clan, Musashi fought for Toyotomi and Hideyoshi's army. Uh, during the Battle of Sekigahara in July of 1600, Musashi took part in the attack on Fushimi uh, Castle, or Fushimi-jo. Uh, he also participated in the defense of the besieged Gifu-jo Castle, in the Gifu, Gifu Prefecture. Uh, he even, even at a relatively young age, uh, he fought vigorously and escaped the defeat of Hiyadori's forces unharmed. Uh, three years later, Musashi fought against the army of Iyasu Takagawa, who, after the victory of his troops, became shogun and established uh, the Takagawa era, known also as the Edo period, which lasted for about 266 years. After the battle, Miyamoto Musashi wandered across Japan, perfecting his swordsmanship skills, having many duels, and meeting masters of the sword. Because that's what you do when you're a swordsman. You go meet masters and try to beat them. Uh, After disappearing from the records for a while, Musashi arrived in Kyoto around the age of 21 or 22. And upon arriving there, he 
she began a famous series of duels with the famous Yoshioka clan. The clan was famous for its Yoshioka Ryu, a style of swordsmanship which was famous across all of Japan and had been founded in 1532 by Yoshiaku Kempo. Uh, the Yoshiaku school uh, was part of the uh, Kyoto Kiyohashiru Ryu, which meant that it was one of the eight major Kenjutsu styles in Tokyo. Uh, the or Kyoto, I should say. The swordsmen of the Yashioki clan had been generations. Uh, for those of you less familiar with Japanese history, these are some pretty heavy name drops. A lot of these clans uh, were pretty instrumental in the formation of governments and rebellions, wars. Uh, they're they're pretty. Uh, these are basically the noble families of of the of Japan during this time. Uh, now, in the first duel that he had with this school, uh, he fought Yoshiaku, Yo- Yoshiaka Sejuro. Now, he was a master of the school and head of the family, was challenged directly by Musashi. Uh, Sejuro eagerly accepts the duel, and both men decide to fight outside of Ridaji Temple in northern Kyoto on March 8th of 1604. As part of his strategy, Miyamoto Mizashi arrives late on the day of the fight. So he goes to this guy's house and says, listen, you punk, I'm going to kill you. Let's meet here. I'll see you at this time. Uh, get ready for uh, ass whipping the likes of which you've never seen. This guy gets pissed. He follows him there, and then he arrives late on purpose. Now, Miyamoto Mizashi arrives late on purpose because he wants to upset Seijuro. He doesn't respect him. Seijuro is greatly irritated and loses his temper with Musashi, judging his behavior to be unacceptable. As he came to his house, challenged him to a fight, said to meet at a specified time, and then shows up whenever he feels like it. Uh, as they both had previously agreed, the duel was to be fought with a wooden sword, a pakudo, and the winner would be declared by a single blow. They faced off and took on the position and took the on guard position. In an instant, Musashi hit Seijuro's shoulder with his wooden sword, knocking him off his feet and shattering his left arm. So Musashi would win the duel uh, with feeling tormented by dishonor. Uh, Seijuro retired from the warrior's life and became a monk in a Zen order. His brother, a brilliant swordsman named Daishin, Denshichiro, became the head of the family and then later challenged Musashi to regain his family's honor and avenge his brother's defeat. This duel was to be held at Senju uh, Sanganada, which is a Buddhist temple uh, in Kyoto, famous for its thousand statues of Kanan, which is the Shinto goddess of mercy and compassion. Great place to have a fight. Go, somewhere, go to a temple of mercy and compassion and kill each other. Um, as with his last duel, Musashi again arrived late. Uh, Musashi uh, really didn't have a whole lot of respect for a lot of his opponents, didn't really care what they wanted. Uh, they agree on a time to fight. Musashi rolls in there a couple hours late, uh, and Denshichiro uh, is absolutely furious uh, because this is a very important duel. This was a, a duel for honor, uh, and the duel was to the death. Musashi was armed with a wooden sword, uh, he arrived on purpose with a wooden sword carved from a an ore that he found on his way there, supposedly. Now, Musashi was uh, meeting a guy who carried a staff made with reinforced steel rings uh, designed to bludgeon a person to death. 
Fuzashi was both mentally, technically, and physically stronger than his skilled opponent. And only seconds after the beginning of the duel, uh, Musashi hit Denshichiro with his wooden sword and killed him instantly with a savage blow to the side of his head. Uh, the Yoshioka clan now became desperate with the death of uh, a second, with their de- death of their master, uh, who was now the second head of the family to be defeated by Musashi. Uh, the head of the clan was now the 12-year-old uh, Matashiro. Uh, who, unlike his predecessors, also challenged Musashi to a duel. At this point, the clan was ready to do anything to gain back their honor and reputation, so they had to take out Musashi. Uh, now, Yoshioka Matishijiro uh, decided that this time that the duel between them was to be fought at night. Uh, it was unusual for nighttime duels to be requested, uh, so Musashi was uh, pretty suspicious uh, he kind of figured that these guys might try uh, to kill him. Uh, they might get together and decide, you know, screw fighting this guy one-on-one, we'll kill him. Uh, so he decided to arrive at the rendezvous point well before the time of night, and he waited in hiding for his enemy to come. Uh, the boy arrived dressed in full armor with a party of well-armed retainers, archers, riflemen, and swordsmen who were pretty determined that they were going to kill Musashi at this point. Uh, they all hid nearby and set a trap for him with uh, Matashiro acting as bait. So, again, uh, this is a 12-year-old boy uh, who's supposed to go fight this guy who just killed uh, the head of the family with a stick. Uh, and, you know, Musashi's not stupid. He knew right off the bat they're going to send a 12-year-old to kill me after I just killed the best that they had to offer. Yeah, that ain't going to happen. Uh, so... Musashi watched the action patiently while concealed in the bushes, and when the moment was right, he left his hiding place, drew his sword, and ran towards the boy, instantly severing his head. Uh, Matashiro's men gathered around uh, him, trying to stop him from escaping. Uh, It's during this battle that many historians have said that Musashi discovered the superiority of wielding two swords. Uh, Greatly outnumbered and with both his swords in hand, Musashi uh, cut a path through the rice, making his escape uh, while being attacked by uh, dozens of men. With the death of Yashioka Matashiro, the the clan, the Yashioka clan, uh, was and their school was annihilated. Uh, many historians agree that Musashi discovered uh, that using two swords simultaneously was totally foreign to the conventions of Kenjutsu at this time. Uh, samurai traditionally only fought with the long sword held in two hands. Uh, so Mizashi, realizing this, <clears throat> decided, you know, why not use two swords? I got two swords, I'll just use two. Two's better than one. Uh, Mizashi's experience forged the path to be to what would become known as the Nitu Ryu style of Kenjutsu uh, and swordsmanship. So, um, now after his series of duels, uh, in 1605, Miyamoto Musashi went to the Hoisin Temple in the south of Kyoto, where he had a series of non-lethal contests with monks who were renowned for being masters of the spear. Uh, he stayed at the temple for a few months studying and exchanging fighting techniques with the monks, also enjoying uh, talking about, also enjoying uh, conversations about Zen for hours on end. Uh, even today, uh, the monks still train in the renowned traditional spear technique, supposedly. 
Now, many historians say that from 1605 to 1612, Musashi wandered all over Japan while on the uh, Musha Shugyo, uh, which is a warrior's journey during which he traveled extensively to test and improve his skills. Um, while on his way to Edo in the autumn of 1607, Miyamoto Musashi would have a duel with Shishide Baiken, uh, a skilled swordsman who was the master of the Kusa, Kusarigama. Uh, for those of you who don't know what a Kusarigama is, it's a pretty devastating weapon. It's a sickle with a weighted chain uh, attached to one end of it. Um, the objective is to either is to get in close with the sickle uh, to to end your opponent, you know, cut their throat, uh, sever their sever their tendon uh, in their leg, uh, immobilize them with the chain, maybe get the chain wrapped around their neck. Uh, people that fought with this uh, weapon. Uh, were people that you tended to avoid. Um, uh, Motivation for entering the duel was that he wanted to end Musashi's reputation as an invincible duelist, uh, but he is uh, unsuccessful. Musashi strikes a deadly blow first, uh, and as Baikin falls, his pupils, uh, his students try to attack Musashi, but uh, quickly run away frightened uh, because Musashi is swinging around two swords like a madman. Uh, that really helps. Helps, helps you get away with things. You start swinging around a sword like a madman, and you have two of them. Uh, you just killed the master. Uh, now you're going to send the students in, and they're not, they're not feeling that. Um, his next duel later in the year was with a man named Muso Gonosuke, uh, who was a famous and arrogant swordsman. Uh, he challenged Musashi to a duel. Gonosuke was a master of the Tenshin Katori Shinto Ryu uh, this, and the founder of the Koryu school of Jojutsu. Uh, Jujutsu is a short staff technique as opposed to the Bojutsu known as the Shinto Musurayu. Now it was claimed that Gonosuke had never lost a duel. Uh, many had said that he had defeated Japan's finest swordsman. Uh, historians say that Musashi's father, Shinmen Munisai, had previously fought against uh, Gonosuke in a non-lethal duel. We're not really sure how that went. Probably not very well. Uh, both Miyamoto Mizashi and his opponent agreed to fight with wooden swords, uh, but Gonosuke was quickly disabled with a single blow from uh, Mizashi's Bakudo. Uh, strongly affected by his duel, Gonosuke, by his defeat in this duel, Gonosuke withdrew to a Shinto monastery where he contemplated his defeat and developed new techniques that he hoped would allow him to defeat Mizashi at a later date. Uh, they would duel again sometime later, and even though Gonosuke uh, would use his newly developed techniques, the outcome was the same. Uh, Musashi would win again. Uh, it was shortly after this time uh, that Musashi would encounter his most skilled opponent, a man by the name of Sasaki Kojiro. Now, Sasaki Kojiro, uh, this is the most famous duel uh, that he ever had. Uh, he, he's also known as Ganryu. It's said that Sasaki fought many duels against Japan's best, and he never lost a duel. Uh, he had developed a very effective sword style based on the movement of a swallow's tail in flight. Um, unlike other swordsmen uh, and samurai who used the traditional katana, Sasaki used a nodachi, uh, which is a very long two-handed sword. Now, despite the sword's length and weight, Kojiro's strikes with the weapon were unusually quick and precise. Uh, Kojiro was Lord Hasukawa Tadaoki's uh, private kenjutsu instructor. Uh, the 
Two greatest swordsmen agreed to fight, and the duel would take place on April 13, 1612, on Ganryu Island, located off the coast of the Bison Province. The duel was set for early the next morning, but on the day of the fight, Sasaki, Kojiro, and the officials serving as witnesses waited for hours for Musashi to show up. His absence led to the rumor that Musashi had run away in fear of his life because he was terrified. Uh, However, nothing was further from the truth. Miyamoto Musashi was transported to Ganryu Island on a boat by a local fisherman as part of his strategy. He arrived late once again, disturbing uh, his opponent's interstate, the objective of which uh, was to make Sasaki Kojiro wait uh, for him to arrive. Uh, this is this sort of becomes the trademark. If you haven't noticed, this is the sort of the trademark of Miyamoto Musashi. He just had no respect uh, for the supposed rules uh, that the samurai had to follow of showing up on time and, and being ready to go. He just He's a man that just didn't give a damn. Um, so Miyamoto Musashi... Uh, during the short trip, sculpts a wooden sword out of an oar. Uh, I think we've heard this before, which he used in his duel against Sasaki Kojiro. Now, this is one. Of the, this is the most famous duel uh, for a reason. Uh, he arrives when he arrives. Sasaki and the official, officials are standing on the beach waiting for Mizashi. Extremely irritated and blinded by rage, Sasaki Kojiro draws his katana, throws away his scabbard. Uh, Musashi saw the jester and said to his enemy, if you've no more use for your sheath, you have already died. Uh, And as the duel began, both men were on guard with respect for one another's ability. One mistake, and they both knew it would all be over. I mean, this is kind of like the gunfight at OK Corral. We all know uh, the guy with the fastest draw is going to win. So these guys are carefully measuring. Um, Most of these guys' duels ended within a single blow. Uh, Musashi would provoke Kojiro into making the first attack and then countered quickly, breaking Kojiro's left, the left side, uh, some of his ribs on his left side and puncturing his lungs with the broken oar, killing him. Uh, before running back to his boat, Musashi bowed to his downed opponent and the officials realizing with sadness that one of the greatest swordsmen ever had just died. Uh, it was at this point that Musashi attained supposedly attained a spiritual awakening. Uh, and from this moment forth, he renounced ever doing lethal duels again. Now, uh, Musashi <clears throat> later established a Kenjutsu school, but no historical records indicate where in Japan it was ever located. Um, Miyamoto, uh, in 1614 and 1615, war again erupted between the Toyotoma family, Tomi family and the Takagawa family. Uh, this time with Takagawa Iyasu as the shogun, uh, the Toyotomi family was perceived by Iyasu as a threat to his rule. Miyamoto Mizashi took part in warfare and siege one last time when he participated in both the winter and summer battles in Osaka. Uh, it's, most scholars uh, believe that in the previous war, Mizashi had fought on the, on the side of uh, Toyotomi Hideyoshi's side, but the exact details of his role in this war unclear. Some believe that he joined uh, Takagawa Iyasayu's army when the shogun besieged the castle of a- Asaka. Um, so there's a little bit, a uh, little bit of a discrepancy there. Uh, he would later uh, enter the service of Agasara Tadanao uh, of the Harami province as a construction supervisor. 
Uh, Musashi helped in the construction of the Akashi Castle and helped organize the layout of the town of Himeji. Uh, during his stay, he taught martial arts, particularly swordsmanship and shuriken throwing. He also perfected uh, his Enmai Ryu Kenjutsu style uh, during, this, during this period of service and adopted a son named Mikinoski. Um, <clears throat> after running his dojo successfully for a few years, Mizashi's reputation began to grow more and more, and he began to be considered one of the best uh, warriors in Japan, of Japan. Uh, when Hondo Tadamasa, the lord of Himeji Castle, heard about him, he ordered Miyaki Gambai, his most skilled samurai, to go there and show him that he was not actually the greatest swordsman in the world. Musashi accepted the fight and the choice left the choice of weapon, either a real sword or wooden sword to his opponent. Despite, uh, you know, saying, I'm done with lethal duels, uh, he knew that he'd been challenged, so he had to uh, make an exception. He offered to let the other guy choose the weapon. Uh, since Miyaki's orders were to test Musashi's ability and not kill him, he decided to cut a piece of bamboo from the garden to use as a weapon. Meanwhile, uh, Musashi wielded the Bakudo. Uh, seconds after they faced off, uh, Gunbai, Miyaki Gunbai was defeated. Now, in 1622, uh, when his adopted son Miyamoto Mikinosasuke became a vassal to the Himeji fight, fight uh, Musashi started to wander across Japan again, this time ending up in Edo in 1623. Whilst there, he became friends with Hayashi Razan, a Confucian scholar who happened to be one of the shogun's advisors. And with his help, uh, he became the teacher for the shogun. Uh, his applicant, he applied to become uh, a teacher for the shogun, but his application was refused uh, as the shogun already possessed two teachers. Uh, so Mizashi again started to travel, leaving the capital in the direction of Yamagata City, where he adopted his second son, Miyamoto Iori. Uh, in 1626, he received a visit from his uh, first adopted son, Miyamoto Mikonoski, sorry, informing him that his lord had died and that following the tradition called Junshi, he would commit seppuku, uh, ritual suicide, following his master into death. While in 1627, Miyamoto Mizashi and his son, Miyamoto Iori, went to live in Agora and later entered the service of another lord, Tadazane. Um, in 1637, or 34, I should say, uh, uh, Lord Agasari uh, organized a non-lethal duel between Miyamoto Mizashi and a Yari uh, spear specialist named Takata Matabai. As expected, once again, Mizashi uh, laid down the beat down on him. Uh, in 1637, Mizashi fought during the Christian rebellion of Shimabara, one of the few, very few turbulent events that occurred uh, during the peaceful Edo period. Uh, Musashi, however, was injured early in the battle by a rock uh, that fell on his leg. Miyamoto Iori served with distinction in putting down the Christian rebellion uh, and was later named advisor to the Lord, a highly praised position. We're here. Sorry, guys. In 1640, uh, Musashi officially became retainer of the Hosokawa Tada Toshi Lord of Kunamoto and received 17 loyal retainers at his service at Chiba Castle as his residence. Uh, during the following year, in 1641, Musashi wrote uh, the Hyo Sanju Go with the 35 instructions on strategy for Hosokawa Tada Toshi. Uh, the book was dedicated to his fighting philosophy and technique and would form the basis of his masterpiece, The Go Ren No Show, uh, which came into being two years later. 
1642, uh, Musashi suffered attacks of neuralgia, a painful disorder of the nerves. Uh, feeling that his end was near, in 1643, Musashi retired to a cave uh, named Riagondo uh, near Kumamoto to write his Go Win No Show. Sorry, it's tongue-tied there. Or the Book of Five Rings. He finished it in the second month of 1645 and gave it to his closest student. On the 12th day of the fifth month, he finished writing the Dakota or the Way of Walking Alone, a book on self-discipline, was, which was intended as a guide to future generations. And he would die in the cave on around the 19th day of the fifth month, uh, estimated around June 13, 1645 by many. Uh, so overall, however, Musashi uh, is considered by many to... Um, be one of the most far-famed warriors of all time. Um, he, he was a mind gamer. So let's dive right into it. Let's not waste any more time. Let's dive right into it. Um, let's take a look at both of these guys' strengths and weaknesses. Uh, we'll start with Miyamoto Mizashi. Miyamoto Mizashi, for his time, was an innovator, uh, liked to wield two swords, uh, was perfectly capable of beating a a well-trained fighter to death with a stick um, that he just carved. Um, but if, we, if we're going on martial skill alone, I think we have to give the edge to Miyamoto Mizashi. If we look at Yuifei, he spends most of his time leading soldiers, less of his time fighting, uh, while he is a very skilled archer and is noted to be fairly competent in hand-to-hand combat. He is not running around having duels with the best of the best. You know, he's not out there seeking actively uh, people to fight and challenge himself. Uh, Miyamoto Mizashi is doing this. He is getting better because he is fighting uh, the best that the that his uh, you know culture has to offer as far as warriors go. Because of this, uh, we give the strength of combat to Mizashi. Uh, as far as, as far as impressive legacies, both these guys have very impressive legacies. But I think. Ultimately, we look at the we look at the battle uh, between Yuifei and the the Yurkins, uh, in which he forces back uh, a much larger and fairly well trained army uh, with only 500 men. Uh, he outlasts 100,000 men, pushes them back. Um, it's pretty impressive. Uh, I mean, you know, his his ability uh, to motivate these men to fight like they did to push back a, an army of 100,000 men when they are so vastly outnumbered. Uh, and their backs are pinned up against the river. That's that's an impressive achievement uh, because strategically where they were standing, uh, they should have lost. They should have easily been you know pushed into the river, drowned, uh, and picked off one by one uh, by this much superior by a much larger force. Uh, but this didn't happen. So this is incredibly impressive. If we look at the way that uh, Miyamoto Musashi's life uh, sort of pans out. We look at uh, the battles that he uh, went into. I think it's safe to say that as far as battles go, I mean, Musashi, uh, we don't really know how uh, he was part of a losing campaign uh, between the between two dynasties. Uh, the Toyotomi Tomi don't win uh, against the Tokugawa clan, uh, and he's fighting for the Toyotomi. So, uh, you know, despite the fact that personally he himself is a tremendous is a tremendous fighter, is a tremendous warrior. Uh, he doesn't win battles. Uh, he's not out there winning, you know, he's not out there changing the tide of a war. Uh, Fei is changing the tide of war. He's out there almost completely unifying China. That's, I mean, it's pretty impressive. 
Uh, so as far as as far as uh, strategy goes, as far as overall uh, success goes, uh, in terms of of warfare, uh, in terms of military campaigns, I have to give the edge to UEFA because UEFA actually leads men into battle, actually trains a unit of men, wins wins a massive battle, and then wins subsequent battles against uh, the enemy. He is he is part of a successful military campaign, whereas. Uh, yeah, you know, Miyamoto Mizashi is is having success in these duels. Yes, his strategy as far as one on one duels or or even one on a few people duels uh, is is sound. It's it's impressive, but he's not winning. He's not changing the course of of military history with his with his victories. Um, so I have to give the edge to Uefe. As far as uh, legacy, both of these guys have really strong legacies. It's kind of hard to to really pick one or two things. So we'll, we'll do multiples of this. But if we look at Musashi's legacy, his legacy really lies in the fact that he is considered to be this really badass guy. Uh, he's out there, you know, killing guys, uh, you know, crippling people, causing them to forsake uh, their calling as swordsmen. This is uh, sort of his legacy. His legacy is a path of destruction. Yui Bay's legacy, however, is a path uh, in which he is bonded uh, with these people. People revere him, uh, not because they're afraid of him. They revere him because uh, he's generous, because he's, uh, he's, for the most part, a nice guy. Yes, he's strict. Yes, he's got this uh, you know, layer of rigidity uh, to him. Yes, he'll execute you if you don't follow his orders and the like. Uh, but he gets a whole town spared. Uh, from the emperor's wrath, despite their open rebellion, uh, you know he manages to pin it down to just a few people getting executed, where instead of the whole town. This is this this is pretty impressive for the time uh, that a guy can rise uh, from the common rabble. Both these guys, uh, you know, have, have pretty interesting beginnings. But uh, the fact that uh, Uefe rises from the common people uh, and then remembers where he comes from uh, and and does his best to look out for the common man. Uh, gives him some brownie points, in my opinion. I, I think that gives him a, a three, uh, three to three to one edge right now. Now, if we look at if, if we look at the impact uh, in terms of written legacy, Miyamoto Mizashi's got uh, got the leg up here. Uh, first off, Miyamoto Mizashi wrote two books. Uh, they're incredibly influential. Uh, the, yeah, the Book of the Five Rings. Uh, you have the precursor to the Book of the Five Rings. Uh, but the Book of the Five Rings, look at his, you look at the Book of the Five Rings and you look at um, uh, the Hayono Sanju Go or the 35 Instructions on Strategy. Uh, it's pretty impressive uh, that these books are still, you know, were, were continuously read. Uh, he also, I mean, and then he writes uh, The Way of Walking Alone, uh, you know, to guide future generations. Now, it's unclear how many people, you know, read these books, but it's probably st- it probably stands to reason that there's a very good chance uh, that most of the most most samurai would go out of their way to read these things. Most swordsmen, most uh, people that had access to the the books, the families of noble people, uh, the emperor uh, or the shogun, I should say, the people around him, they would have read this. Uh, and they probably enjoyed it. They probably would have continued to read it. There's a reason uh, that Miyamoto Mizashi is, uh, you know, heavily touted uh, for all of his achievements. It's because people uh, 
were impressed with what he did there, impressed, impressed with his body of achievement. His legacy is a little bit different. He's got a legacy of generosity, of success in battle. But there's just so many questions about his legacy as well. Um, so, you know, in terms of generosity, in terms of, you know, being a people person, Yuifei wins that round. But in terms of overarching achievements, uh, we have to give it to Miyamoto Musashi. Uh, this is a man who beat the best swordsman of his day in his country. He went out and personally challenged them, defeated them, uh, and then just kept doing that, just kept getting better. He he believed in making himself better by taking on the best. To beat the best, you got to take out the best. Uh, and Musashi did that. He he did those things. We know that he did. These are recorded duels that he had. So because these duels are recorded, because we know, because there are witnesses uh, who wrote these down, we know that he comes to the situation with Yui Fei. Uh, his son was his first biographer. And, you know, he talks about his father as though he's Superman. Uh, I mean, and what kid doesn't believe his father is Superman? Uh, with, you know, what kid who has a great relationship with his dad doesn't want his dad to be Superman? Uh, you know, um, but the problem is we can't substantiate that Yui knows all the things that his son says that he knows. Uh, there's no, we don't have a written record that he was actually, that he actually knew all these martial arts. We have people uh, giving him credit for these things. Uh, we even have a situation where he's given credit for a poem uh, for the longest time that he probably never wrote that, uh, that, that is dated to uh, years, years and years, like almost 500 years after his death. Uh, so that's, that's kind of one of the issues we have with Yui Fei is that uh, there's so many questions about his legacy. There's questions of credibility uh, because of who's writing about him. Whereas there's not really questions about credibility with Musashi because, uh, you know, he's killing people and people don't really like him. Uh, in his earlier years, they don't really care for him. Yes, uh, there are the young, you know, younger warriors who kind of are aspiring to be like him. Uh, but for his time, Musashi is considered to be pretty rebellious. Uh, you know, people didn't use two swords like that. Uh, they certainly didn't show up to duels late. Uh, you know, they, it was all manners, all uh, you know, respect. Uh, all of these things were were heavily uh, praised in in samurai culture. And he kind of went against the grain. So as far as that goes, uh, we give the legacy uh, to Musashi because Musashi's legacy uh, is one of just not caring uh, what other people thought and then earning the respect of his peers because they just had no choice, but to give it to him uh, because he killed them. Uh, So when, when you kill, kill all your, uh, kill all your peers, then, then you, then your neighbor, then their peers and, you know, the people that are watching you kill them kind of have no choice, but to sort of, you know, bow under the weight of that. Um, now, if we look at uh, if we look at Miyamoto Musashi's early earlier duels, um, the one thing one thing that one thing that I do think um, you kind of kind of got to hammer uh, critique Miyamoto Musashi for is uh, you know he he sort of just you don't want to say he killed a defenseless guy. Uh, but look at his duel with uh, Matashiro Yasuyoki. Here's a kid. Uh, he's 12 years old. He's kind of been pressured into fighting Musashi because uh, his, you know, everybody that's older than him 
uh, is lost. You know, his 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 predecessors uh, had lost to him, and everybody's like, "All right, uh, Matashiro, it's your time. You you have to go." Uh, so you have a kid that's clearly not in his class, um, and there's a re- so you know you can see that there's definitely a reason why Miyamoto Musashi. Uh, should have been suspicious about the challenge of a duel from a 12-year-old boy uh, in the middle of the night. Uh, but at the same time, Miyamoto Mizashi was in a position where he probably could have afforded not to kill this kid, uh, probably could have afforded not to even get involved in this fight. He could have uh, refused the challenge. Uh, would it have Would it have kind of made him look dishonorable? Yeah, but at the same time, he was already not caring about looking dishonorable. I mean, he was already showing up to duels late and beating people to death with oars. Uh, at this point, do you really have to kill this guy? Is it really going to enhance your legacy all that much? Not really. Uh, so uh, for that, I feel like uh, we I, I have to take away. Uh, I, I, I can't really in good conscience say that Miyamoto Mizashi uh, deserves uh, anything for that. Uh, that's one strike against him that I would give him is that he did kill Matashiro and really kind of unnecessary, really an avoidable situation when he knew that it was going to be a trap. He could have even said, well, you guys are, you know, you know, guys, I showed up to the duel, but you guys tried to assassinate me. So, uh, you know, you lose by default. Um, people had said uh, similar things in the past when people show up and they break an agreement that would have looked bad on uh, the Yashioka family anyway. Uh, so you <clears throat> would have achieved a similar effect, maybe even a worse effect politically for them had he done that. Uh, instead, he chooses to kill Matashiro uh, and then kind of flee the scene. Um, so kind of a – really kind of a shady thing to do. Now, if we look at Yui Fei, uh, Yui Fei has control over his men. He, they're disciplined. Uh, by all accounts, uh, despite the fact that there are kind of questions about, you know, you know the supernatural strength and, and, and the prowess of his, of his, phys- you know, his own physical prowess, what there aren't questions about is the way that he conducted battles and the way that he <clears throat> forced his men to adhere to his rules. Uh, his rules were absolute, and Uife uh, openly stated that his men were not allowed to loot cities. They were not allowed to pillage uh, and rape people. Uh, these things were not accepted, uh, and Uife punished any such infractions by death. Um, so the discipline with which he conducted himself uh, and the discipline with the, and the the high standard that he held for all of his soldiers uh, is really what uh, gives Yui Fei an edge in this care in, in this case, in terms of character. Uh, I think Yui Fei is a, is a, I don't want to say a better person, but he is a uh, more moral person than Musashi is. Uh, Musashi pretty much just killed that kid and didn't really even think about it. He kind of just said, eh, I'll kill this guy, and then I'll just run out of here real quick. That's fine. Uh, you know, now you could make the argument that, you know, on the other hand, well, Miyamoto Musashi showed up with the intention of dueling. But, okay, but even if Miyamoto Musashi showed up to duel uh, Matashiro, Matashiro is 12 years old. Uh, Musashi is a grown man. Uh, he's killed all kinds of people. He's fought in two wars. This kid is 12 years old. He's a kid You know picture a kid Putting on his daddy's you know Suit of armor and going out to battle uh, You know This is the equivalent of 
this is the equivalent of giving your 10-year-old a sword and then, or giving your 10-year-old boxing gloves and saying, get in there and box Mike Tyson, son. You can do this. It's just Mike Tyson. Uh, you know, you can't, you know, Miyamoto Mizashi should have been the better man. Uh, and should have just, you know, laughed off that challenge. This 12-year-old boy, I mean, he could have laughed in his face and left. Once he found out that there was going to be an attempt on his life just for accepting the duel, he probably should have just dipped, just got the hell out of there. Uh, but he chose not to do that because Miyamoto Mizashi was all about himself, and he didn't care about anybody else. Uh, whereas UEFA realized that he was not conquering his own people. He's trying to repel an invading army, and he doesn't want, uh, his men to take advantage of the people they're supposed to be protecting. He also doesn't want to leave behind a legacy where people believe uh, that he was this ruthless individual. Uh, so he wants to lead by example, uh, lead uh, with morality, uh, which is one of the reasons why I think as far as character goes, I think Uefe is a stronger, has a stronger character than Musashi. Uh, if we look at their lives in terms of longevity, However, uh, if we look at their legacies in terms of longevity, almost uh, you can scarcely really you know talk about samurai without somebody bringing up uh, Miyamoto Musashi. Uh, we talk about Chinese history. There are many great uh, great individuals from Chinese history as well as Japanese history, but Yuifei uh, is kind of a folk hero for the people of China. Outside of that, um, you know, you might have the oddball historian who's talking about him, like me. Uh, but most people are like, huh? Who? What? You, you Fei? What? What is? Who? Like, uh, huh? Uh, but if you talk about Miyamoto Musashi, all you have to do is bring up, bring up his duels with the Yashioka school, and all of a sudden everybody knows what you're talking about. Or if you mention the Book of Five Rings, everybody it suddenly clicks. Oh, the Book of Five Rings. I know who wrote that. I know. I know that guy. Um, so in terms of over overarching legacy. You have to give the edge to Mizashi. So it's a pretty close race so far. Pretty pretty close uh, so far. And for those of you who are trying to figure out what I'm doing, I'm measuring these people uh, as far as what their achievements are, measuring their overall contributions to history, uh, measuring you know what we what they did versus one another. And ultimately, we're going to find out uh, which one of these individuals uh, really made the bigger impact. Now. So for those of you who are kind of confused about what's going on, just, just to reiterate that that's what's going on for you guys. Um, now, UEFA was said to have never been defeated in battle, uh, but then we, we learned that he's actually called back. Uh, he, he's called back. So he personally is not defeated, but his army is defeated uh, because he's called back home. Uh, and, and basically all of the land that he took uh, gets taken back by his enemies when he's called back. Now we can say, you know, that's not really his fault, but UEFA, despite the, this is one of those situations where your morality kind of gets uh, the better of you. UEFA was all about honor, being honor bound and, and, you know, being loyal to, to country and to family and to the people. Uh, so when he's called back home, he returns, uh, foolishly returns and is executed. And then all the ground he gained uh, for his people is lost. Um, when he ret- when he returns, uh, whereas Miyamoto Masashi, uh, you know he <laughs> he doesn't go out like that. Uh, he goes out on top. Miyamoto Masashi goes out on top. He beats the best swordsman that there is. Uh, he he beats everybody that he can beat, 
and then once he's beaten everybody that's worth beating, he he opens up his own school. Uh, he he writes a few books, meditates for a while in a cave, and then he dies. Uh, you know he 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 doesn't really uh, he he goes out kind of kind of okay. You know he doesn't he doesn't uh, get the trade and and lose everything. Uh, his legacy kind of remains intact. Um, people still aspired to be like him. Not to say that people didn't aspire to be like you were Fei, but uh, his, he's, you certainly are taught a lesson uh, by the experience of UEFA, uh, and that lesson is that, you know, sure, it's good to be a moral leader uh, and to be uh, loyal to country, to be loyal to, you know, those around you, uh, but you have to be careful, too. You have to be uh perceptive enough to realize that your loyalties can be taken advantage of and that not everybody has your best interest at heart. And UEFA uh, is sort of blinded uh, by his loyalty uh, and this costs him. Uh, so in terms of overall uh, overall impact as, uh, on, on the nation, uh, I think it's safe to say that Musashi, uh, Musashi's legacy is the one that stacks up much lar- in a much larger way uh, because of the books that he wrote uh, because of the fact that he does kind of go out on top. Uh, you know, he isn't defeated uh, in, in a duel before he dies. Uh, nobody comes along and sort of takes all his achievements away from him. He, he, he manages to go out uh, on top. And while he does manage to, while he does go out sort of in a cave, like a hermit, uh, he does so by choice. Uh, he's kind of just like content to go out that way. Um, he's, pretty much done everything he wanted to do. He set out to become the greatest swordsman in Japan. Uh, and then he went out and killed all the best swordsmen and became the greatest, uh, you know, by default, there was nobody else there uh, to be as good as him. So, uh, that in itself is pretty impressive. Uh, I, I have to say in terms of that, in terms of legacy, I think, uh, both of them have strong legacies, but I think it's, it's safe to say that our, uh, our samurai, our samurai guest uh, holds the edge uh, in that regard. Um, and now uh, we move to <clears throat> uh, the impact that they've had on popular culture. Um, we look at, if we look at Miyamoto Mizashi. Uh, there are um, there are a number of of films dedicated to Miyamoto Musashi. Um, there's an entire TV miniseries dedicated to Miyamoto Musashi uh, called Miyamoto Musashi. Uh, there are A few movies. Let's take a look here. Let's just take a look at all all the popular culture uh, that he's impacted. Uh, so there are several films uh, actually titled Miyamoto Musashi. One in 1929. One in 1937. 1938. Uh, there's two made. Uh, there's two made in 1943. Or I should say three films made about him in 1933. One in 1944. Another in 1954. Uh, another film for uh, an entire trilogy made over between the years of 1954 and 1955. Uh, there's an entire manga uh, dedicated to him. There is a 
there is uh, <clears throat> a story involving him in a practice duel um, that appears in a set piece involving other characters in the movie Seven Samurai, which is, again, suitably modified into the American Western remake, The Magnificent Seven. Uh, there's another film uh, that's five parts long, ten hours long in, in total, by the name of Miyamoto Musashi, it's in 1961. Uh, there's there's two more films in 73 and 71. Uh, and then again, there's the entire uh, Sorokara no Musashi television series uh, that ran from 1964 and 1965. is rebooted in 1981, comes back again in 1996. Uh, and then the, 47, uh, the 42nd NHK Taiga drama Musashi in 2003. Uh, there's a there's even a play written uh, in theater by two th- in 2010 by Hizashi Inoue. Uh, there's films from there's another film in 2014, and then there's a two part television series called Miyamoto Musashi that just came out uh, in, in again in 2014. Uh, so he appears prominently in film he's been appearing in films for decades, decades. I mean, since, since the early thirties, uh, Miyamoto Mizashi has remained, uh, just in film, just in film alone since the early thirties, he's continued to consistently appear in popular culture. Uh, he is, he is a fixture in popular culture. Uh, even still, he appears, uh, prominently as a character in video games, he's he's in kind of everything. Uh, and of course, the Book of Five Rings is still re- is still read by people today. Uh, people still read it. Um, it's it's still considered one of the most popular one of his most popular pieces, Book of Five Rings. And if you haven't read it, you can get it. It's available on Amazon for those of you interested. And you can get it translated, so you don't have to read it in Japanese. Here's a book written around 1645, and it's still around. This is still around. That's a long time for your book to be around. I mean, this guy uh, wrote this book, and it's still around. Uh, and it's and by the way, it's a book split in. Um, and five, it's it's really technically five books, but it's all in one. Um, so this is this is incredibly impressive uh, that his book has been around uh, and had had such a following for so long. It's been republished and repurposed, retranslated. Uh, it's been redone. It's it, it was redone in 1974, uh, and it was also redone in 2011. So. Uh, this is, uh, or I should say 2012, uh, as a graphic novel. So this is a book that's been around for a long time. So if we look at the overarching legacy of Miyamoto Mizashi, uh, it's kind of hard to say that he's really got much competition in the way of Yui Fei, because Yui Fei doesn't have a book that lasts that long. Uh, his biographies are, are, uh, are looked at for sure. Uh, historians still cite his biographies, but if we look at uh, we look at the impact of Yui Fei on popular culture, uh, 
we can look at the we can look at the um, just the just take a look here. Uh, there's really not a lot. Uh, there's a film in 1940 called Yui Fei. There's uh, Jin Zhong Bao Guai uh, served the country loyalty in 1940. <clears throat> uh, there's Yu, Yui Fei Chu Shi, uh, the birth of Yui Fei in 1962. Uh, there's the 12 gold medallions in 1970, uh, which is kind of Yu Fei doesn't appear, but he's mentioned. Uh, there's a couple of television series. Uh, the Patriot Yu Fei is come came out in 2013. It's on the biography of Yu Fei. Uh, the 8,000 Lee of 8,000 Lie of uh, Cloud and Moon TV series uh, ran from 1988 to 1989. Uh, Legend of Yu Fei is a, uh, came out in 1994 as a 20 20 episode series uh, about his life. Uh, but Ultimately, you know, there's really not a lot on him. There's not there's not a whole lot dedicated to him. Um, he, you know, he doesn't really he doesn't really appear very prominently in popular culture uh, outside of China, and and it's rare uh, to really see. Um, there's not there's not really a long line of of him just you know through the ages being uh, a source of you know, inspiration and entertainment and the like. Uh, and maybe that's just because Musashi's story is kind of sexy, right? It's a guy who just doesn't care. He goes around, he does what he wants. Uh, he makes, he's out to make a name for himself and he succeeds. He succeeds despite the fact that, you know, everybody kind of hates him. Uh, you know, he does it. And, and we, we kind of, we kind of cheer uh, who sort of achieves in spite of everybody else sort of having spite for him. Uh, so at the end of the day, uh, when it's all said and done, Musashi's got the stronger legacy. Uh, it's just too hard uh, to give really any, uh, really any push to Yui Fei, despite his achievements, uh, despite the the way that he treated people, uh, as far as you know his his morality, his respect for his common man, uh, his, his his attempts to sort of bond with his men, uh, his beliefs about. Um, you know, upholding a high standard morally, ethically, uh, both in wartime and out of wartime, the strict and rigid nature of his training regimen, you still can't, you can't uh, overstate enough that Musashi has the stronger legacy. So at the end of it all, tally it all up, I give UEFA three out of the five categories uh but I give Musashi four out of the five categories that we've covered as far as achievements, legacy, uh, you know, impact on popular culture, uh, and you know, you know, overall overarching influence uh, on their own people. I have to give Musashi four out of the five. Uh, the major, you know, the major uh, qualm I have with Musashi is the fact that he kills Matashiro, um, and Matashiro uh, really had no idea what the hell he was getting into uh, when he's <laughs> he's kind of pushed into this. Uh, I felt like Miyamoto Musashi didn't have to kill him, but he did. Uh, these things happen, um, but ultimately, 
I think it's safe to say that Musashi Musashi's got the stronger legacy. And if I had to pit these two guys against each other in a fight, uh, I would say that Musashi would absolutely destroy Yui Fei. Uh, he would absolutely murder him. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that Musashi, with his cold, calculating nature uh, and his tendency to show up late to the fight, Musashi would show up six and a half hours, six and a half hours late to the fight uh, before Yui Fei's called back to the Empire to get murdered. Uh, and then he would just wait him out, and then he would die. Uh, Musashi just is a guy who really, it, it, you struggle to find his equal. Uh, he is a man who actively sought out his equal, uh, trying to become the greatest swordsman uh, in, ja- in Japan, uh, while killing the greatest swordsman that existed in Japan, ultimately realizing that he's been the greatest swordsman of all time, the entire time just not knowing it because, you know, he hadn't killed everybody yet. But once he kills everybody, then he knows that, yeah, okay, I'm the best. Uh, So at the end of it all, our winner, our champion, our hero of the historical Coliseum today is Miyamoto Musashi. For his ability to just not care and just be an innovator, uh, ultimately his innovation is just, you know, basically using both swords. I mean, you know, we know that a lot of samurai had two swords, but they weren't using them. Uh, Miyamoto Musashi was. Also, uh, guys, in the future, just remember, if you take away anything from today's lesson, remember, if you have to fight someone, show up late. If they'll be so pissed, you'll just be able to beat them. No, you know, try not to fight anybody. But uh, if you're going to, uh, just take one out of Musashi's book. Show up whenever you feel like it and just don't care. Uh, but don't do that when it's time to go to work or you'll be fired. Uh, that's all I've got for you guys today. Take a look at the Book of the Five Rings. If you're interested, uh, there's several bi- biographies available on uh, UEFA. Uh, I recommend taking a look at them. Uh, start with the just, uh, just start with the first one and work your way down. I mean, there's 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 a number of them, uh, but um, that's all I've got for you guys. I hope you guys enjoyed this segment. Hope you enjoyed uh, being welcome to the Coliseum. No, oh, it's been a long time coming. Uh, but for me, it was difficult to find somebody to kind of match up to Mizashi, uh in a cultural context. Uh, you know, I had to find somebody who was around during wartime. Uh, it's real difficult pinning it down. Uh, but nonetheless, guys, thanks for tuning in. As always, see you all Sunday with Straight Football Talk. As usual, you catch me there. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. See you on Sunday.